Welcome to the Bear and the Bull. I am your host, Nick Webster, and today I am delighted to have on the show someone I've known a very, very long time. In fact, a young man that I used to coach uh, at the high school level. He went on to far bigger and better things. Oliver Curry, head equipment manager for the one and only MLS champions, LAFC. Welcome to the Bear and the Bull. There you go. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Super happy to be on. Ollie, we got to start two months ago. We have to start there. Yeah. Perhaps one of the most dramatic MLS Cup finals of all time. Yeah. You're there on the bench. Okay. Talk me through the emotions of that game because it really was something very, very special. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I think I'm going to take it back to a couple days before the match. Um, so we trained at the stadium. And leading up to the final, honestly, you know, when you talk to to people that have been in these kind of experiences before, they tell you how finals feel different and they never go the way that you kind of expect them to go. There's always like a little wrinkle to them, you know. And honestly, like training felt different. Like I was forgetting things that I usually don't forget. Like, and it wasn't even nerve. It was just kind of the, the moment, you know what I mean? And so then going into the match, obviously we played at home because we were the one seed all the way through. And um, we had played Philly one other time this past season at home, and we had, we had drawn. Um, but after the game we had against Austin, we, we felt comfortable. We thought that it was going to be a good match for us. And as long as we played our football, we, we should take care of business. And we probably didn't have our best day. Um, and we, we played well in spells, but Philly definitely kept up with us. And it was a very back-and-forth game. And... Um, you just kind of felt that even when we went 1-0 up, that Philly had at least a goal in them. And then we did the we, we scored the second goal to go 2-1 up late in the second half. And it's hard at that point to not get excited. You know, you're already thinking about the celebrations after running onto the pitch at, at the 90th minute. And then um, within a couple minutes, they, they equalized. Um, and so then from there, it's it's you know, into, into extra time and in, in football and in soccer. Um, extra time is really anyone's game at that point because really both teams are going to get an opportunity. It's just about the team that's going to that's gonna take a hold of the opportunity. Um, and at the end of the day, we both did. Philly got their opportunity first, unfortunately, because of the, the injury that happened to, to Maxime Cripeau. Um, us going down a man and, and then being up kind of gave him the advantage there. Um, to be quite honest, when we went three, two down, I, I thought it was done. I thought it was done. And, and maybe now thinking back on it, it was silly of me because when you have a, a guy named Gareth Bale on your team, who has been in, uh, in similar stages before, um, there's always hope. So I, I was definitely down though. And then next thing you know, uh, you know, Cheeky Palacios gets down the line and, and gets on the end of, um, of a, of a ball and is able to cross it in before, before it goes out for a goal kick and, and Gareth Bale with just a, a leaping header to, to tie it. And then realistically at home, then three, three, we were a, da- a man down, but going into penalties. Now the energy had completely shifted. I was like, I, I don't see us losing this game. So what, what was the atmosphere like in the stadium? Because 
for for many teams when when you're when you're the home team in that situation there's actually more pressure on you because you're expected to win the game yeah and the fact that the game was so topsy turvy where like you say you're up you're down it's over we've lost no we're back in it did you did you did you get that sense of the of the of the pressure that not only the players were feeling but the fans as well yeah absolutely i think um i think we felt it the most going into extra time because you are 2-1 up in the 84th minute at home in a final you should find a way to to wrap up the game you shouldn't be going to extra time and penalties right and so then when we drew an extra time and took it to penalties, I felt that the statement we had made already was so strong that it, the pressure kind of, you know, come back a bit on us. Um, and then our DJ in the stadium at that point played this, uh, this really um, famous Latin American song called uh, Oye Mi Amor. And the place just blew up. Everyone was singing it. Like, it felt like we'd won it already. Everyone was just, you know, shoulder to shoulder, hugging, like, ready to go for these penalties. Um, so the pressure was, was I thought, a, a lot less at this point. And then we, because of the injury, again, we, we had John McCarthy in goal. Um, and we had seen in training and in a couple of the matches he had played previously that he was very strong in penalties. And obviously, he, he showed it. Um, and then obviously chaos chaos ensued once the the third penalty went in and, and we won it. So here's here's a here's a crazy question for you, and and you don't have to answer it, and you can just go, Nick, you're you're, you're out of your mind. What was the better final, the MLS Cup final or the World Cup final? Because they're both same kind of drama. Sorry, it, it cut out there for a sec. Could you repeat the question? <laughs> what was the better final, the MLS Cup final or the World Cup final? Well, it's crazy because they both ended three three, uh, or two two in regu- two two in regulation, three three in extra time, and then and then penalties as well. Um, I mean, for me personally, having been been there and, and lived it, um, I'll, I'll go with the MLS Cup final. But um, I'm a huge Messi fan, so so it's a very close second. The the World Cup final was a, th- a thing of beauty, honestly. I mean, for even for the the especially the neutral fan. Incredible. Two amazing, amazing games of soccer. Okay, so you're the head equipment manager at LAFC. What does a what does match day look like? Talk us through match day. What 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 is your role? Um, do you ever find yourself talking to players? Do they ask you how they play? Mm. Are they asking for advice? Are they uh, uh, what what kind of things are players asking you for? So take us take us through the alarm clock rings. Match day, Oliver Curry gets out of bed. Hopefully, you have a cup of tea, right? I, I hope I taught you well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a cup, but yeah. So, start with my cup of tea in the morning after the alarm goes off. Um, I usually head to the stadium probably like four hours, four hours before before kickoff. Um, one of the things I do like to do, though, however, is I do most of my uh, locker room set up the day before the game so the le- the week leading up we print all the the kits that we need for for match um, we pack our bags with all the necessary equipment that we'll need um, we'll, we'll say that it's a home game 
any any of the equipment that we'll need at, at our home match, right? Um, and so I'll go the day before, and uh, I'll set up all the warm up stuff. I'll put out all the kits, all the game shorts, stuff like that. Um, and then probably one of my favorite parts is, especially at this high of a level, every player has a little something that they like differently. Whether it's uh, a cutoff compression shirt to wear underneath their kit. Um, a specific kind of sock, specific kind of compression short, whatever it may be, there's always something that uh, they need to to be able to feel comfortable in, in their skin during a during during a match. So, adding those little details to to my locker room is is always an exciting bit on game day. Um, Do you find that? And then, as, uh, as for as, the... sorry, uh, sorry for interrupting. I thought there was a gap there, but obviously the, there's a bit of a lag. Um, do you, do you find that players are superstitious? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the examples. So for like Denis Buanga, um, who we just picked up this season, will only wear like Nike compression shorts to play. Um, Ilya Sanchez, and I hope I'm not like, you know, giving away their, their little secrets here, but I'm sure they wouldn't mind, but... Uh, like Ilya Sanchez, for example, always likes to the little GPS vest that they wear uh, that tracks all their information. They, he likes to change it uh, three times, once after warm up um, and at halftime. So three vests total. Um, and oh yeah, Maxime Kripo is definitely a a very superstitious uh, player as well. The way that he goes about his routine is is actually fascinating to watch. Um, whether it's a home match or away match, he always comes in. He takes a very um, comprehensive look at his locker room space just to just to see that all his things are there. Um, and then he usually goes for a little walk out on the pitch um, and then comes back and, and starts getting ready. But, yeah, no, they, they definitely are very, very superstitious, um, a lot of them. So those are, those are always interesting things to see. Um, and then just to go back into, you know, leading up to match time now. Um, the players usually get there about an hour and a half, two hours before the game. For the first half hour that they're the, uh, the, that they're there, it's very chill vibes. Usually someone is playing music. It's actually usually me uh, who's on the aux cord, which is fun. Um, and, you know, players, I've never had a player really ask for advice, but having played at, decently high level i'd like to think um i have decent things to say to, to players and so just kind of like to get in their ear and if they've had a great game before you know just telling them to to go off of what they did the game before and and um little things like that uh one of the players that i really like to speak to before the game is uh Cifuentes, who's absolutely world class and i'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of him in the next few years um so yeah, that's that's basically it. And then once um, kickoff comes, I'm on the bench and really just monitoring and making sure that everyone is all the players are comfortable in, in their equipment. Um, whether it's you know a player that is in firm ground boots and maybe needs studs at halftime, anything like this. And then um, I guess the main responsibility during the game is when we make a substitution, I, I provide that player with their with their kit. Are you there during the uh, team talks? Yes. And from 
someone who's like you say you play, you played the game at a decent level and let's let's pimp you up here you know you played uh gw four years yes, captain sir, of the team you. i believe <laughs> yes thank you not, not too shabby right um when you when you're hearing the tactical talks how does that compare to the tactical talks you you received at college is is there a big difference it's a very good question um thinking back a little bit on the the college tactical um analyses that we went through just to just to think for a second but i think one of the main differences at the professional level is that because of just how um world well yeah how talented and world class the players are at this level the topics are a bit more broad right because you don't have to explain everything in in extreme detail so obviously each team that you play has little things that differentiate them and so it's about pinpointing those but once you have you don't i feel like you, they don't go into it as much because once you've identified it it's something that players understand and can um and can work with throughout a 90 minute game or, or 90 minute plus whatever um uh to work with and and find ways to break down if that makes sense yeah absolutely um so you, i mean you've been at lafc for the, that was your third year correct uh third year with the club and uh, i was my second season in kit correct yeah what what are the differences between Bob and Steve? And that'd be Bob Bradley, the former manager, Steve Chandelo, yeah. the, the new manager. Yeah. Um, I have gotten the question before and they're very different managers. I don't like to go into the question into too much detail because like I said, they're very different. But I think one of the main differences, um, Bob was very... Um, tactics heavy and Steve is as well but one of the things that Steve I think has brought is um, because of the fact that he played up until not so long ago he has a very good understanding of the mental side of what these players are going through on a day-to-day -day basis right and every specific little situation and so I've I've definitely seen in certain situations where He's very good at knowing when to put his arm around someone and, and you know, be in their ear and tell them a little something. And so I think that's probably the main difference between the two, between the two managers. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I mean, Bob's had a, a, an incredible career. Absolutely. Uh, as, as, a, as a manager, Princeton, Chicago, national team, mm -hmm. LAFC, and, and, and now in Toronto. But, you know, it, it was funny. I, I actually interviewed Steve. He probably, he would, he would never remember it. But in, in 2003, mm. this is probably you were even born, right? Or maybe the <laughs> year you were born. Um, and he, he, he'd just uh, been part of the national, national team. Uh, this was in the uh, Confederations Cup in 2003. And mm -hmm. he was obviously doing very well at uh, Hanover at the time. Yeah. You know, broken into that team. And the, it, was, it, was very, it was really cool to interview somebody who was playing over in Europe as opposed to the guys who were MLS players. And there was definitely a, I want to say, not more professional, but it, it was almost, um, they had more worldly experience mm. of what 
the game looked like at the top level. Now, you're now experiencing that with, like you say, world-class players who are, who are coming into LAFC. Uh, and in my mind, because of your Italian background, immediately goes to Cialini, yeah. who played for Juventus and won the Serie A title, you know, more times than we've had hot dinners. And <laughs> just, just a, a player of untold experiences. Does it feel like that when he's in the locker room? I, I I have to take a second every time I I'm about to speak about Chiellini because um it's just it's honestly a dream come true to to be able to work with someone like that. Obviously, my ultimate dream growing up was to have been able to play with players like that, but now to be in in the same room on a day to day basis is is equally as good. But no, you you can absolutely feel it at any point, um, both in training and in games. And from the first minute too, like the first game that he was with us, the first week he was with us, you could tell that the level he's played at, what he's bringing to the club now is just, it's incredible. I mean, because you have to think like the Champions League finals he's played, he just played the finalissima final against Argentina. Like he's been in, and the Euros, of course, like he's been in just absolutely massive moments. So these you would bring are... that one up, Ole. You would, wouldn't you? I know. Just, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, twist there. <laughs> I almost, I almost dodged it. I almost dodged it. I mean, I can still but... sing him, see him pulling Saka down. You know. That was, God. That was, that was a dirty <laughs> one. That was a bad tackle. But no, it's it's the expertise that he brings in, um, and the amount of times that he's been in these kinds of moments, in big moments, he knows uh, how to approach them. He knows how to be be comfortable in uncomfortable situations right and so I'm, I'm yeah i'm just trying to think of even little specific moments i'm sure they'll come to me throughout the throughout the episode and then I'll, I'll bring them up but um even just as a person though like with the young players with the older players with the staff like just world-class client world-class guy altogether so what what does he bring though to that locker room that when he steps inside, there's there's immediate gravitas. Is, is that what it feels like? I mean, do do you see do you see? I mean, do you see other players kind of hanging on to his his words? Yeah, absolutely. As soon as he starts speaking, it's quiet. Everyone goes quiet as soon as he starts speaking in the locker room. And the the I guess one of the more specific moments I can talk about is before games, almost before all the games. He really likes to emphasize and reiterate some of the major topics of the week, right? So let me think of an example. Like, um, you know, when, oh, when the right back pushes high, they like to bring the winger inside. Let's remember this, guys. You know, Mario, make sure to communicate with Cheeky. You know, and everyone listens. The coaches, quiet. You know what I mean? Like, it's those kinds of things. It's even though he's saying things that, we've gone over many times, there's a way that he's reinforcing it. That's like, okay, this is really what we have to pay attention to. So, yeah. No, oh, it's, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And it makes me think about his journey 
you know, from from being a you know obviously a, a young kid in Italy and and going going through that process of of learning to be a, a footballer, and then learning to be a pro, and then learning to be an international, and then learning to be a winner. So let's let's take that and and apply it to you because I'd love to know your journey. So yeah. I know I was part of uh, a little bit of part of your journey in in the high school level. Let's 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 talk about Oliver Curry from this young player who, with an Italian background, of course, mustn't forget that, and yeah. and, and how much it means to you, and, and and what an important part of your heritage it is. You know your soccer career, because you know many of the people who listen to this show are, are young aspiring players, and they want to go and and be starters at their at their high school, and they want to go to college and and be a four year starter, and they want to have that little that sniff of what possibly a professional player could could look like so talk to us a little bit about your journey yeah so um i'll start from from the beginning i guess but um i grew up playing in ayso like i think uh many people of my generation did um and i played probably a little bit longer uh in in the ayso organization a little bit longer than um kids these days are i believe um, I think it was probably around 12 or 13 that I made my first jump to, to club. So before then, I was doing like the all-star teams with Santa Monica. I was playing with AYSO teams, right? And so then I made my first jump to a, a club called Pacific Coast Soccer Club, PCSC, which was, I believe, bronze or silver at the time, um, which was a good level. But um, as we know nowadays, you know, the in terms of college recruitment and, and getting looks and being at the big tournaments, you have to be in the premier level clubs or even now it's even more so it's academies strictly. Um, and so I played for PCSC up until 16, 17 years old. And then I made uh, one more jump in the club level um, to Santa Monica United, which was premier at the time. Um, and I think when I made the jump there, I probably realized that I possibly overstayed my, stay at PCSE by a couple of years and maybe should have gone to, to a higher level before then just to, like I said, to get the exposure at the bigger tournaments. And that's where the college coaches were with, you know, with the aspirations I had of playing in college, it was definitely important for me to, to, to be in front of those coaches. Um, and then just rewind a bit before then I had a very brief stint, um, at the galaxy, um, where I went on trial with their academy team. I think it was for, my, for the under-15s or under-16 team at the time. And, I mean, it really just goes to show you how demanding of a sport it is, right? Because I was, at the time, I wasn't driving yet, so my dad was driving me out there to, to Carson five, six days a week to train. Um, and, and I guess that's what you have to do if you really want to, you know, give yourself the best shot at the, at the next level. Um, but I just... I felt that it wasn't the right time for me to do that. And it just wasn't the right situation also, also because of how demanding school was at Windward. And so I decided to, to stay in club and um, I got some. Any regrets there? I mean, I think it's easy to dwell, right? And, you know, who knows what would have happened? Who knows what would have, if, if I had gotten more looks or if I had gotten a big, uh, you know, division division one scholarship just because I played for Galaxy. You know, who knows? Maybe. Um, one thing I will say though is, 
I think what's important, and I, you definitely spoke about this a lot, is you have to play around players that are not just at the same level, but that are at a higher level than you because that raises your bar as well, right? And I think I got a little too comfortable being in the club level. So I think if I'd gone to academy, it definitely would have, it probably would have pushed my game a little bit more. So in that sense, a bit of regret. But regardless, I, uh, I found a way to college. Um, I didn't get as many Division One uh, or as much Division One interest as I had wanted. Um, so I kind of tailored my search to a school that made more sense academically and um, personally. Quickly yeah. talk about that, that process, Ollie, of, of wanting to play at the, the D1 level and, and, and not getting the, you know, everyone's like, oh, you've got to come here, you've got to come here. Right. I mean, what, what, what was that process like? Yeah, I mean, it's a really tough one. And honestly, I can only speak on how it was at the time because I feel like the game has changed so much. And I'm sure you can speak on this as well. But when I was doing it, it was all about the college ID camps you were going to and the tournaments you were at, right? And so with both of those things, it was about understanding which college coaches were at the respective tournament or ID camp trying to contact them, try and get them a highlight tape before you go, and then try and tell them like, hey, I'm going to be at this tournament camp. Would love to see you. Would love to meet you. I'll be on this field, right, to try right. and get them. And, but it's, 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 you know, so it's, you know, you talk about that process. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, on field 24 in Lancaster at 2 yeah. o'clock, right? Yeah. But, but then it's all about having the moment, Right. Yeah, because, of course. Because within the game, you have to have the moment for the coach, for the scouts, coaches to go, oh, shit, oh, th- this guy can play. Right. Yeah. So what, mentally, are, are you psyching yourself up for the moment or are you just saying, uh, just play your game? I, I remember, and I'm going to answer the question, but I remember going, or I was supposed to go to a college ID camp down at San Diego. And at the time, Drew Ray was one of the coaches at Windward. And, and he told me, or he asked me, you know, like, like, what are you thinking of doing when you're down there? Like, how are you approaching this? And I think I said something along the lines of like, you know, <laughs> like, I, I want to, I want to play smart. I want to play simple, keep things simple. He's like, Think about your game. Do you like, yes, you keep things simple, but like, are you a simple player? Like I go on Maisie's, right? Like what he was trying to tell me was like, it's the time to express yourself, right? You have to go out and you have to try and seize the moment. And so looking back on those ID camps, I think what's important to realize is that you have nothing to lose by really trying to go after it, right? Because if you do, when it goes well, you like, you get all the, get all the attention. If you decide to take it a bit more comfortably, I mean, unless you're keeping it simple as in like Xavi and Yesta's Adon, where it's just, you know, crisp two-touch passing all over the park, um, it's really going to take something special to, to, you know, get the interest from coaches. So you have to seize the moment, you know, so don't be scared and, and you just kind of have to jump into it. You have to throw yourself. So how did you get noticed by the GW system? 
So the GW system, I first applied early decision to GW because, like I said, it made sense academically, personally for me as a as a university. And then after that, it was about um, again getting in front of the coach, getting getting him to notice me, um, which was honestly very difficult. And then um, through the help of Winward and yourself and a couple other individuals, we were finally able to to get um, his attention and to go to the college ID camp for GW. So full circle made it to an ID camp again. Um, but thankfully this time it was the school that I was already going to. Um, and it was also a pretty small ID camp, which is another thing that I'd like to say is um, if you can find a way to know how many players are going to be at ID camps, it's much better to be at like a 50 person than 200 where, you know, you have to really have your moment to, to stand out. Um, but I went out to D.C. It was only a one-day camp, actually. And, uh, yeah, it was like 30 people. And really, it was just a lot of small-sided games up until the, the last game at the end of the day, which was which full field. Um, and this, I definitely seized the moment. And I think it helped that it was only a one-day camp because I was like, you really have, you have no time to waste here. Um, and, yeah, I just expressed myself. I played my game. I, I took risks. Um, and then it definitely helped that I was already into, into the school, right. I was already going there. Um, and so the, the coach, uh, coach Jones invited me to preseason, um, that summer, which was like no more than two, three weeks later. So when, when I came back home to LA and then flew back to DC for, for preseason. Yeah. There's something about, and it's a phrase I use a lot. Be brave. Okay. Yes. Be brave. Yeah. You always said that. So. You're now in uh, college. You're a freshman. You, you've used to, and, 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 and no offense, but you, you're used to being the star of the team. Now you're at the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. What was that process like? And, and, and how did you handle it mentally? Because I, I know a lot of kids um, really struggle that, that, that first, definitely that first year, maybe even going into their second year of like, I'm, I'm not the star of the team. I, I don't get to start by right. Mm-hmm. I'm on the bench and I see a minute if I'm lucky. What, what, what's that process like? And, and, and how did you, how did you deal with it mentally? To be honest, I think I got lucky in a way because the process that I'd been through in the past year of, first of all, trying to get recruited. And then secondly, trying to get noticed by GW, it hum- humbled me in a sense, right? Because it had been so difficult. And so when I, finally made the team that was such an achievement for me already that I feel like a lot of the pressure and the expectation for myself um dropped right because I was like now I've made the team so firstly I was like I just need to enjoy the experience because like I've made a division one program right um and there were definitely nerves involved because the rest of the freshman class like had a training program the whole summer um they had met the rest of the players on official or unofficial visits right i had i hadn't met anyone i met everyone on the first day of preseason so in that sense it was nerve-wracking but like i said it was a lot about me enjoying the moment um and clearly i'd gone there for a reason after a a one-day id camp i'd clearly done something right so now it was just about again playing my game um and i just really fell in love with the idea of being a college player. Um, 
you know, you have classes with a lot of your teammates. You have the same schedule as your teammates because you train at the same time, right? You have to have class at the same time. Um, you have social activities, to put it one way, um, with your teammates, right? Like you really become brothers and it becomes a brotherhood. And then also the fact that you're there a month before school even starts with soccer in particular because the season is in the fall. So then you go into school and you kind of, you know, you're, you have a, a leg up on everyone because you're, you've kind of settled in and you have friends already and, and all this. So, um, but go back to the original question. Yes, there were nerves, but because of the fact that I, I had worked so hard to, to get to the moment, it was really just about enjoying myself at that point. Is Division One soccer, is it a J-O-B? Is it a, is it a, is it a job? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. I mean, there's no putting it lightly, right? Because you train most of the time six days out of the week. Uh, your weekends aren't normal, meaning that the rest of college kids are you know, going out and being social Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? Like there are weekends that you're on the road and you come back late Sunday night and then you're just straight into class on, on Monday or so it's a very different experience, but as you know, Nick, my aspirations were to play professionally. So I, I saw this as a very important step and, and possibly the, the final step before achieving that goal. And so I absolutely enjoyed myself, had a great time in college, but I was there for the footballing element of it, right? So... I was very invested in the idea that it was a job and, and I loved getting up for training and going to training and all that, you know, so it is, but I think people shouldn't be intimidated as, as, you know, or find it as intimidating as it actually is, because if you truly have a passion for the sport and you, and you love it, it, it just fits in perfectly with, with, you know, with the schedule and, and a way of life. So, but how did you find that balance? Because, you know, I, it, you know, in, in full transparency to to our listeners, you know, I, I got my bachelor's degree when I was like fifty three or fifty four, uh, working full time, going to school full time. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. How did you how did you find that soccer education balance? Because ultimately, you know, you you yes, you were there for the football to further yourself, but at the same time, yeah, why not get a degree while I'm there as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I probably give myself a little bit less credit than I should because um, I, I did end up choosing a degree that was pretty strong. Also, at GW, I, I ended up studying political science. And so it was a very rigorous uh, course load. And I think there were a couple things that, that helped me for sure. So first of all, if you become, if you're a college athlete at any level, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, they provide some really great resources. From what I understand at basically any institution, um, specific tutors, academic advisors that really help you to create a very strong routine um, and study habits and stuff like that that really keep you on track, right? So that's the first bit. The second bit, I think, was the fact that you have three grades above you that have done, you know, what you're doing, right? And so, like I said, having that brotherhood doesn't just apply to the fun part of it or the footballing side of it. It's also very much the college, the college part of it and the life part of it, right? Because you're away from your parents for the first time. Like you're, you need people to look up to and, 
and uh, people to look to for, for guidance. And so in that sense, um, especially the grade right above me, I had some really great friends in there that um, I would study when they studied or I'd do work when they did work. And that really helped me to understand what the balance was and how to go about um, doing it. I mean, you, you bring up such a great point, routine and study habits, and you, you get that down, everything just kind of flows. So now you're in your senior year, you know, this, you're going to get your degree, you're yeah. playing your last year of collegiate football, but you've also got your eye on, a, on another prize. Where are you at mentally at this point, and, and what do you, what's the ultimate goal? So I think the ultimate goal for me was I really wanted to play overseas. And that was a goal of mine, really, I think, since I was young, growing up, watching football overseas, right, and obviously spending as much time as I did in, in Italy and um, seeing Italy win the World Cup in, in 2006. I'm not saying that my ultimate goal was playing for Italy in a World Cup, but I wanted to play in a in – a, uh, in a club. You got a dream. You got a dream. You got a dream. It's very, if you're not going to dream when you're young, when are you going to do it? Um, but that was my ultimate goal. And so, um, going into my senior year, um, uh, or senior season, it was really just about finding as much consistency as I could. Um, I had injury issues, as you know, in high school as well. And they definitely transferred. You and your hammies. I'll tell you. <laughs> So bad. <laughs> I know. Um, but continued to have some injury issues in, in college as well. And so I didn't find that consistent consistency that I wanted where I really um, was able to be a standout player. I, I played really well, you know, when I was on, but I definitely wasn't on as, as much as I, as I wanted to. Um, and so, yeah, following my senior season, I, I, you know, set my eyes on the goal and, and started thinking about how I could do it. And I, Ended up signing with uh, an agent in Italy, which was kind of the, the first step of, of hopefully many. And um, so then for my last semester of uh, college, I continued to train with the team in the spring, spoke with this agent, and then the plan was for me to go to Italy um, in the summer, so in the off season, which is, which is what I did. Me and my mom went to Italy in, uh, in July or August, um, with the hopes of, of getting a trial for a, uh, Sedia C or Sedia D team, um, in Italy. And, uh, my agent at the time said that he had set up a couple things and got there and ended up not being the case. Um, it was actually really unfortunate, but the, the moment, uh, that I realized the overseas dream was kind of over was, um, boots on kit on walking to the training pitch and then i get pulled off because supposedly there was an issue with my with my medical not that i had health issues but the type of medical that i underwent was supposedly not correct and so yeah from there um packed the bags and and came home to to la and um so now the, the new goal, I guess, was to hopefully play in the USL or even better in the MLS. Um, but mainly it was just training, you know, training and trying to find a, a sniff at, at anywhere I could. Um, and I did it for about a year and um, just wasn't getting, getting to where I wanted to be. Um, and I hung up the boots, I think, what I thought to be temporary 
I was like, um, take a little time and work a little bit and see what's going on and ended up being pretty permanent, but no regrets, honestly. I really, I think I, I have no regrets because I truly pursued it to the, to the full extent. So yeah, you did it, you know, and the, the beauty for me is that you landed back in football yeah. at the highest level here in these in the in the US. Yeah. So tell us how did that position come about? Yeah. So I started at LAFC actually in 2020 right before the pandemic and um I was in ticket sales actually and at the time obviously there weren't many games to go to let alone tickets to sell. So um I really created it or I, I used it as a time to uh create really good relationships with a lot of different people around the club um which is kind of my my mantra nowadays is relationship building because I think it's just extremely invaluable. Um, and so, yeah, I did that for, for a year. I was selling tickets for future games at LAFC. And along with that, I was, I was just meeting a lot of different people around the club, especially a lot of people in soccer operations and telling them about my background and my aspirations and, and my dreams of being on that side of the, the organization. And after a year, the assistant kit man, position um freed up it was available and i i asked a couple different people how i how i can you know throw my name in the pot and i went through i think it's important to say that it's not like it was just here yeah like you can be the assistant kid man i did the full interview process and um and ended up coming up uh on top and so i became the assistant kit man um and i, I was that for about uh three weeks and then um the at the time head kit man moved on to a to a different uh opportunity and uh i was left as the the sole kit man of lafc so um i i kind of took over the the department in 2021 um that season was my first season and i did the that whole season actually just just on my own as a lone kit man which just taught me so many different things and obviously it was a was a beautiful experience but definitely was was tiring as well and here you are now in 2022, an MLS champion, uh, defending champion coming into the 2023 season. And you've just started this week. You're back this week. Yeah. Um, I mean, just uh, for, for, for me to see and to have been part of your growth is just incredible. And, you know, when I catch the games on TV and I see you, see you there on the bench and, you know, I've seen you at the stadium a couple of times. I've been right. lucky enough to get, get some expensive tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Being able to shout at you, I mean, it's, it's just incredible. And I, we're we're actually coming towards the the end of our time. I know you're you're, you're super busy. Um, if people want to get in contact with you, are, are you on the gram? Can can people yes. follow you and 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 see see what it's like to be Oliver Curry, LAFC equipment manager? Yes, absolutely. I'm on Instagram. My my handle is uh, Oliver Curry with two Y's at the end of it, uh, all together. Um, I'm on there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and not to get all wishy-washy, but I absolutely love making connections with, um, people that are looking to have similar careers or even people that are still playing that are wondering how to stay involved in the game. Um, you know, when they do finish playing. So I'm more than happy to, to speak to anyone, uh, about my, my journey, my experiences and give any advice I can. Obviously my my uh, post-playing 
journey has been really unique um, and, and definitely had some luck involved as well. But, um, you know, love to speak to anyone and give advice. Oliver Curry, MLS champion and former, former player of mine who uh, scored some great goals. I, I, I can remember them now. My, my favorite was the one against Santa Monica. That was just, that was just class. What? Uh, as always, you can follow the Bear and the Ball uh, at Cal South. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at calsouth.com and on Instagram and, of course, on Facebook. And if you have a question for me, I'm also on Twitter at Nick Webster. Hope to see your questions and thoughts. And uh, obviously, Oliver is available for you anytime. Ollie, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Best of luck this season. Repeat, and uh, I'll see you at the bank. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much.